You might not be in the market for a luxury apartment overlooking Central Park, especially considering the state of the economy. But you can still look, and if you're like me, dream a little. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. A new book called Window on the Park gives readers a peek inside some of Manhattan's most luxurious residential buildings. We'll talk with author Dee Fitzgerald in the moments ahead. But first this morning, a look at the impact the sour economy is having on New York City's luxury housing market. Jonathan Miller is president of the real estate appraiser firm Miller Samuel. He joins us now to talk about what life's like these days for sellers and buyers. Good morning, Jonathan. Great to be here. What is the state of New York City's luxury housing market? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is define what does luxury actually mean. And the way that I look at luxury, because I think luxury in real estate, the word luxury like location is probably one of the most overused phrases. Uh, I think luxury in Manhattan 40 years ago meant that you had a doorman, and that was really it. Now it's sort of morphed into something else like pet spas and online or uh, on-site sommeliers and all kinds of crazy amenities. Um, but I define lu- the luxury housing market, it's relative to the local market, and it's usually the top 10% of price transactions. So, for example, in Manhattan, the, the top 10% would be something in the neighborhood of above three, three and a half million dollars. If you're talking about Brooklyn or Queens, you're talking like, you know, north of eight or nine hundred thousand dollars. So in Manhattan, we're talking about the areas around Central Park primarily? Yeah, or pri- other primarily. The, the core markets are going to be the Upper East, Upper West Side. You're going to have some midtown sort of condo high rise. And then in the uh, Greenwich Village and Soho Tribeca, those would be considered sort of the core markets for luxury housing. Now that we've defined (laughs) luxury housing, what is the state of this market? Well, it's interesting because if you look at it on a national basis, uh, the New York region was the last to the party, so to speak, that we really started to see weakness after everybody else did. And, and, And one of the drivers of why we were late to the party was the financial services sector, Wall Street, and uh, record compensation. And definitely, um, you know, Wall Street was a, sort of a driver of the of one of the key drivers of luxury housing, high-end housing. And uh, the irony is, is that the reason why we were last to the party is that the bonus or bonus compensation was correlated to, you know, uh, the securities industry, which is, uh, you know the whole mortgage mortgage securitization thing is one of the reasons why we're in this global credit crunch so we're sort of getting our due but what you're really looking at is September was a tipping point in all real estate whether it's luxury or not whether it's New York or any part in the country in probably a 10 week a 10 day period in September we saw the AIG bailout Fannie Mae Freddie Mac we saw the key for the New York region was the Lehman bankruptcy so essentially what you had is Within a two-week period, the market simply dropped a step as opposed to sort of this gradual downward curve. And the result was transactions right now are probably – or not probably – are at about half the level that we would see uh, this time uh, a year ago. And prices are off anywhere from 20 to 25 percent. What's going to be really interesting is you know, initially everything corrected right Almost, you know, whether it was uh, the low end of the market or the high end of the market, there was this pullback uh, almost overnight. Um, what you really saw, uh, what you're starting to see now is a 
is a polarization based on mortgages. And so, for example, if you look at the bailout uh, or you know stimulus plan or whatever word you want to give it as it relates to housing, it essentially is uh, the, the emphasis has been on Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA. And if you look at someone putting 20% down and qualifying in Manhattan for a mortgage, the max to qualify for Fannie Mae, which is um, much a much more liquid market, you're talking about $729,000 mortgage, which means $911,000. Now, earlier I just said that you're talking three, three and a half million. So what you're already seeing is this movement in of first-time buyers, and you're seeing still a very quiet, high-end luxury market. So I know that's a long-winded answer, but essentially the upper end of the market is very quiet, that there's there's very little activity, but there certainly is activity nowhere near what it was before. How long have you been doing this kind of work? Well, I started when I was two, so that's why, you know, uh, no, I've been doing this for 23 years. And is this the worst you've seen it? This is the worst. I, I uh, well, it's the worst, it's in a different way, meaning that, that the market changed so quickly, and I've never seen that before. Um, I lived through, I first started my company in the mid-80s, and then we went through the 87 stock market crash. And really, 89 was when you started to see um, really uh, a fall off in activity. And the early early 90s was sort of the bottom of that the last big downturn we had. And the conversation during that period was luxury housing is over. There'll never be luxury housing again, 1991. That was sort of the mantra. And, uh, you know, here we are 15, 20 years later, and there's still that discussion. So, you know, I think what's different this time is that it happened very quickly. And many people that are in the market today never really appreciated the fact that housing is cyclical and we're going through a downturn. Have prices dropped more for condos or co-ops? That's a great question. And the answer is... Right now, about there's no real difference. I think the difference in when you look at uh, luxury housing is the difference between resale and new development as opposed to co-op and condo. The co-op market in general probably has a, at least in the near term, has a better prognosis simply because co-op boards did a much better job at vetting the financials of buyers than banks did. Uh, you know, during the sort of heydays of fast and loose credit, which was really probably the period of 2003 to 2006. The issue you have now here is the issue between resale and new development. And what I mean by that is um, there's been a tremendous amount of new development coming on the market. The target for that has been luxury housing, high-end uh, high-end housing. And the problem right now is that Fannie Mae, which is a conforming mortgage facilitator, meaning that they basically are the uh, vehicle for the secondary mortgage market and take the lead on on that uh, to allow banks to be able to sell off their paper and free up more capital to lend more money. Anything that's not that is considered jumbo, jumbo financing. And if you look at for example, in Manhattan last last quarter, first quarter, the average sale price in Manhattan was about a million eight, right? So you're looking at high end development. The bias is towards higher price properties. Financing is an issue. Not only that, but Fannie Mae now has a requirement in new development, which is this massive catch twenty two, where a building has to be seventy percent pre sold, whether contract or closed. So if you're in a project that's humming along and you're at twenty percent sold, now that this sort of first of the year policy that Fannie Mae enacted, how do you get from 20 to 70? It's a catch-22. And uh, I, I don't think people are really bleeding for 
you know, solution to this until we fix the entry and middle end of the market. So I've learned a new four-letter word. It's called time. <laughs> and time is, time is, I think, where people have to really pay attention to because this is going to be a while. I've noticed some developers of luxury condominiums are turning those buildings into rental buildings. Yes, that's an interesting development. I think that's happening more outside of Manhattan than it is happening in Manhattan. Uh, In the the mid-80s when I started this, uh, there was very little difference between new condo development and new rental development, meaning that if you were standing inside an apartment and you didn't know whether it was a condo or a rental, you couldn't tell. I mean, you just couldn't tell. So they were, if the market got weak, the developer could readily flip it into a rental and, you know, sort of abandon the conversion plan to a condo or, you know, the, the new offering plan. Today, it's very different. For example, if you had a new development site in the Upper East Side a couple of years ago, uh, in the early 80s, you would have built 300 apartments with lots of studios and one bedrooms. That same site during this last housing boom, you would have built three and four bedroom apartments, you know, all luxury, high end, but only maybe 90 units because they're larger in size. That's been the, you know, the sort of this key difference in, you know, where we are now that that um, those, you know, the larger units, there aren't as many tenants for those. And not only that, but uh, the really the bread and butter of the rental market is uh, studios and one bedrooms with small two bedrooms, not three and four bedrooms, um, you know, very luxury. The other element to this, which is going to be a challenge for developers, is that the amenities on a condo, you know, I was sort of kidding earlier with the uh, the pet spa and the, all the crazy amenities, you know, that doesn't translate to rental very well. So if they do go rental, it's more of as a stopgap to stop the sort of cash flow bleed until the market recovers and they can start selling again. I know that some co-ops only allow cash deals. Yes. Is that a mistake in this kind of economy? Sort of the jury's out on that. And what I mean by that is um, I did a, a study, actually my only foray into academia, I did a paper with with some economists at NYU, and it was published a couple of years ago. And we looked at about 100,000 transactions uh, in Manhattan and parsed out all the differences in amenities. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of one, one and a half percent of the co-ops had, were, had all, were all cash. And we could not discern a premium for that or a penalty, meaning that it, um, and I, I, you know, after controlling for location and building type, the problem is, is that uh, right now sellers, in because the housing market has changed so quickly, are about a year behind the market. And I would venture to guess that co-op boards are probably two years behind the market. So they're going to be very late in terms of adapting because they have a vested interest in their own apartment in the building. So we, we're seeing, seeing cases, although it's not rampant, but we're certainly seeing cases where deals are being killed because the board feels that the price is too low, even if another offer comes in, another buyer at about the same price, and that's sort of a you know testament to what the market condition is in that building, it still is being rejected. And you know, you no matter how much control you think you have, you still don't control the market. The market as a force tells you what the number is. How long are properties sitting on the market on average? Well, that's a good question because it certainly expanded because we've seen a growth in inventory. Uh, you're looking at 
Uh, typically, and all the boroughs are different, but you know, Manhattan specifically, you're looking at marketing times of around five months on average. During the height of the market, meaning the the, the frenzied period, which would be 04, you were looking at you know somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 days, so probably just about half the pace, which is a big difference. From a reference standpoint, if we were having this conversation in about 1991, the average marketing time would be anywhere from 9 to 12 months. Hmm. So it's a very different animal. I've noticed a lot of for sale signs outside of townhouses throughout Manhattan, and I've noticed that they've stayed up for quite a while. There's two things going on there. First of all, the townhouse market in Manhattan, the uh, average sale price is somewhere in the neighborhood of $4 million. And uh, as I was talking about sort of this whole conforming mortgage, jumbo mortgage polarization. So, of course, they fall into the jumbo side. So they're consistent with the slowdown in um, in activity at the high end, although there certainly are transactions just not, you know, they're at half of the pace they were before. The other thing with uh, the townhouse market is that it's much more visible to the consumer in terms of signage, uh, but it only represents in Manhattan about uh, in the first quarter, about 1.4% of all the transactions, very tiny, whereas the rest of it is co-op and condo. And the other interesting thing about townhouses is that it's a fixed form of housing stock that uh, new construction has never been readily accepted. If if anybody's ever made an attempt to be new, it ends up being some sort of rental, but not a long-term hold. So Anyway, it's it's got its quirks, but it's certainly feeling the pain just like everybody else. We've, of course, been talking about high-end real estate. Where are the deals on the lower end? If I had $300,000 and I was looking for an apartment in New York City, can I get a nice apartment for that money? It depends on what you define by nice, but... Uh, Not a shoebox. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's been happening is, you know, and, and in, in every cycle like this, or, you know, that I, I sound like I'm 100 years old, but... Uh, usually it's the first time buyers that come back into the market. And so what you're seeing with the the price correction that we've experienced over this last six months has been first-time buyers, and they've been studio and one-bedroom apartments. And if you think about, you can get, you know, in the East Village, uh, you know, parts of West Chelsea on the co-op side of the market, not the condo side, you can see things in the $300,000 price range, which might have been in the upper fours, or you know pushing five a few years ago, um, you know that's going to get you uh, you know you know three hundred square feet, two hundred fifty three hundred square feet in a walk up. But I would imagine that's a pretty good investment because once this turns around, you're going to get a nice return. Well, that that's the whole thing. Um, you know what I find kind of funny about this, and I'm believe me, you know I'm a real estate appraiser. I'm not a I'm not a broker. I don't. We actually are doing – we do better in weaker markets than we do in better markets uh, because people are more likely to uh, seek out advice than they are in a better markets. Everybody's smarter than me and in you know weaker markets, you, you get sort of the, the opposite feeling. And uh, it never ceases to amaze me that people are much more comfortable buying with the herd – you know, when everybody's buying, then I should buy when you really want to be contrarian. And so as a result, uh, right now, you you are seeing people come in. People are trying to time the market, which I have a real issue with. I don't know how you can. But I think if you're going to time anything um, and you're a first-time buyer, 
because of the conforming mortgage market um, improving, that's going to be the first to pick up. So, you know, if you read the newspapers about $30 million townhouses not selling, that has no correlation to your $300,000 studio. So you probably want to, you know, on that regard, you know, over the next year or two versus, you know, waiting two or three more years. Jonathan Miller, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. Jonathan Miller is president of the real estate appraiser firm Miller Samuel. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. The luxury housing market in New York City is more lukewarm than red hot right now. But the properties themselves are still something to marvel at. A lot of us have wondered what life is like inside the city's finest buildings. A new coffee table book gives us an up-close look at more than 50 luxury buildings on Central Park. It's called Window on the Park. Dee Fitzgerald is the author, and she's here now to talk about it. Good morning, Dee. Good morning. You're a real estate broker in New York City. Is that how you got access to all of these exclusive addresses? Yes, it is. Yes, so I've been a broker for approximately nine years in the city. So it took about nine years to, um, you know, edify myself with the product and and the buildings around the city and develop relationships. And um, this took me, I, I, it took a couple of years to do the book. So the last couple of years I'd been working on it. Growing up in Yonkers, I was born in the Bronx, I was raised in Yonkers, and I used to take the 4C bus to my internship in Manhattan when I was in college, and the 4C always went along Fifth Avenue, and I would so admire the buildings along Fifth Avenue, and I still have aspirations of one day getting in there. They're amazing buildings. They are. They're absolutely building um, beautiful, and uh, that's one of the reasons why I did the book as well is because I think there's many individuals like you who drive by and just look at the architecture and just say, wow, what magnificent buildings, and they always wonder, I wonder what the, you know, it looks like um, behind the exterior and what type of people live there and, you know, what what type of interiors lie beneath the walls. 59th Street to 94th Street along 5th Avenue was once called Millionaire's Row. Absolutely, yes. It was homes to home to the Astors, the uh, Vanderbilts, the Whitney's, the Carnegie's. During that time when it was Millionaire's Row, it was actually lined with large, luxurious mansions. I think the changing of the architectural uh, character of that avenue was with the advent of the tall, luxurious, um, luxurious apartment house. And the first luxury apartment building was actually built in 1912, and it was designed by the renowned architectural firm McKim, Mead & White. And um, they were very successful in convincing the rich that it was fashionable to live in apartment houses. Was this 998 Fifth Avenue? Absolutely. You're very good. Yes, absolutely. It's a beautiful, stunning Italian Renaissance structure. And, uh, it, you know, it did. It paved the way for um, and set a stylistic trend, if you will, for the buildings that soon followed. Um, most of them came in the 1920s and were designed by the very prolific architect J.E.R. Carpenter, who actually he designed 17 buildings on Upper Fifth Avenue alone. He did a couple more around the park, 30 Central Park South. It's a commercial building and 110 Central Park South, which is a conduct building. It was converted in like 2004, 2005. E.B. White had a great quote, and you include it in your book. Rich men nowadays don't live in houses. They live in the attics of big apartment buildings and plant trees on the setbacks. Yes, yes. I love that quote, and I love the book even more. What would you say was the most spectacular apartment that you've encountered? It would have to be absolutely the penthouse in the Pierre, 
which was on the market for $70 million. And the interesting thing about this building is that if you purchase in the building, you have to purchase all cash. So you cannot procure financing. And interestingly, this $70 million penthouse um, is owned by a gentleman by the name of Martin Zwag. And uh, he uses it as a pied-à-terre. He comes maybe once, twice a year. <laughs> For that price. For that price, yes. But it's amazing um, apartment because it basically just houses all of these amazing um, historical artifacts. The dress that Marilyn Monroe sang, Happy Birthday, Mr. President, and also Babe Ruth's outfit. Also the Beatles uh, drum kit. It's so old, the drum kit, that they actually just take the Beatles sign and they tape it up on the drum. So it's pretty fantastic. I've heard that about many of these luxurious apartments along Fifth Avenue and throughout the city that they're more like museums. Yes, yes, yeah. Sometimes you go into these residences and and you just question whether someone even lives there because it's just you don't you don't want to sit on anything or touch anything it's just museum like splendor it's pretty fantastic many of the buildings that you include in your book have roof decks and one in particular caught my attention and that is the roof deck at the Alden on Central Park West. Yes, stunning, absolutely amazing. It's like a roof deck unlike any other. I mean, they have a huge lawn up there, a nice loggia, Mediterranean-style loggia that overlooks the city. It's interesting because the outdoor space um, supersizes the apartment. The apartment is relatively small, but it, talking about artifacts, it's like an a, a, um, art deco museum. Everything in there is from the era of um, the art deco um, realm. Or not the realm, but it's from the era of the Art Deco. So the not only is the furnishings, it's also every little knickknack, every little lighter is from the Art Deco era. How important is the view for the owners of these luxury apartments? That's very important. Uh, you know, oftentimes when I'm working with people who want to purchase on Upper Fifth Avenue or Central Park West, they're adamant about having an apartment that faces the park. That's the most desirable. Everybody wants to look out across at the park. How do you decide between Fifth Avenue... Central Park South or Central Park West? Wow, yes. Um, that's a tough decision. It, it really depends on your taste. They are very different. You know, it was interesting because originally when I uh, first started writing this book, I had a book deal to create a book called Upper Fifth, and I was only going to do Upper, Upper Fifth Avenue. And while I was researching and writing building descriptions on Fifth Avenue, I kept on looking over and looking at Central Park West, which is absolutely the most architecturally distinct and acclaimed street residential in the city. Why do you say that? Because it's just, it's a diversified array of structures and varying heights, creates a crenellated skyline. Stylistically, they're they're very different. They're diversified. And I think uh, that's large in part due to the fact that it was largely developed before the Great Depression, which was before 1929. The Great Depression was 1929 to 1941. So there was more money. People were a little bit more flamboyant. And there's some grand structures on that avenue. The Dakota, of course, is yes. one of the more prominent buildings along Central Park West. Absolutely. That was um, built in 1884, and it stood alone after it was built. If you look at these old-time pictures, it just looks desolate out there. That is a masterpiece. It's amazing. I love that building. It's a mixture of German Gothic and um, English Victorian and French Renaissance principles. And it was built by, um, not built, but it was actually designed by Henry Janeway Hardingberg, who also designed the plaza, one Central Park South. 
Unfortunately, he only did two buildings around the park. He's pretty magnificent. He also did the, you know, Carnegie Hall, the Waldorf Astoria, and um, the Con Ed building. The iron fencing around the Dakota is amazing. Yes, yes, the dry moat. It's very dramatic. It's very dramatic. It's the most photographed building in the city. And, of course, the Dakota was home to John Lennon. Yoko Ono yes. still lives there. Yes, she does. And, and sadly, John, John Lennon was... Um, shot outside of the building. Judy Garland um, also lived there as well. What would you say is the most impressive lobby of these buildings? There's not one that really stands out above the other. Some of them are um, very large. Some of them are, are, you know, very small. But um, I I guess I would have to say, you know, the newer buildings, like 15 Central Park West. That's the newest building erected on Central Park West. And that's a Robert A.M. Stern building. When that first opened up, apartments were going for you know, five, $6,000 per square foot. There's one lobby in the book that is modeled after the Vatican Library. Yes, yes, yeah. That's the uh, the Sherry Netherland, actually. It's beautiful. It's small. Have you ever been inside the Sherry Netherland? No. Yes, it's it's gorgeous and it's stunning. I Yeah, that, that lobby is amazing, but it's, it's very small, too. Talking about the Sherry Netherland on Fifth Avenue, pets have to be carried through the lobby? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so if you have a Doberman, um, you probably have a bad back. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because the buildings have their own bylaws, rules, regulations. And so they can say, oh, this is a pet-friendly building or this is not a pet-friendly building. And sometimes they can restrict the size. Like we accept dogs, but they have to be under 20 pounds. Which building would you say has the most ornate facade? I would say that's uh, challenging. It depends on if you're at Central Park West or Upper Fifth Avenue. I am very partial to um, neoclassical architecture. So I really love the Beresford and I absolutely love the San Remo. Those were both uh, designed by the same architect, Emery Roth. Basically, with these buildings, the top, the bottom level is built of limestone, and it's rusticated, so it's very thick and articulated grooves. And then there's um, there's ornamentation. You can see cherubs and swags and bucraniums and and um, also uh, details from the classical orders. So it's rich with its own beautiful language. That's what I love about these historic buildings is the the detailing on the facades and on the structures themselves. Are any of these buildings historical landmarks? Oh, yeah, most of them are, absolutely. There's the historical landmark um, has uh, basically, if you look from 59th Street all the way up to, say, like 96th Street on the west side and the east side, they're basically all landmarked. So you can't touch the outside unless you get approval. Exactly. Yeah, a very stringent approval. It's, there's a lot of red tape to go through. So, yeah, it's a process. But I, I think it's great that they do that because it helps preserve uh, these beautiful historic buildings. Talk to me about how some of these homes are furnished. They are furnished in like a museum-like splendor. I mean, it, it is like walking in and into a museum. It is, you know, from, from all varying ages, from, you know, very Baroque or Rococo or Edwardian. It's like stepping into an era of a day gone by. It really is, you know. Um, I think more people are used to going into modern-style apartments, but around the park, a lot of these homes, too, are third- and fourth-generation homes, so it's been in the family for a very long time. And, uh, you know, nothing was changed much with the decoration. Yeah, I was going to ask you that question. Is there a high turnover rate, but I guess not? No, no, there's not. And a lot of these buildings 
buildings are very difficult to get in. There's a very um, rigorous board interview that you have to go through in order to even get into the building. A lot of the buildings, especially on Fifth Avenue, require all cash down. So, you know, they're discerning, and they can turn you down. They don't have to tell you why. In addition to the magnificent apartment buildings, you also include some of the museums that line Fifth Avenue and Central Park West. Yes, absolutely, because they in themselves are amazing structures, and I thought that uh, I should include a few of them, particularly Museum Mile, which is the stretch known as 80th Street to 90th. Street. And there's also, you know, there's Frick at the the 70th, but, you know, from 80th to 90th, you have the Guggenheim, you have the Cooper Hewitt. So there's some fantastic museums. There's also the Jewish Museum. Cooper Hewitt was once the home of Andrew Carnegie. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. He was very involved with that building, you know, process. And when you go into these museums, it's just, it's amazing to think that there was just a couple that lived there and they were always outnumbered by their servants. You know, it was like one couple and then there was, you know, um, 16 servants that lived in the building. Were there any buildings that you weren't able to get access to that you wanted to? Yes, absolutely. One that you might find that is missing is um, the San Remo. I love that building. It's probably my favorite building around the park. And I just couldn't find the right apartment to get into. There was also another one. Um, that I had access into is Mary Tyler Moore's old apartment, but then you know he didn't want me to say what where you know what the address was. And with this book, I would definitely put in the addresses. So and it was an amazing apartment. I would have loved to have included it. How did you approach the owners? I mean, these are people clearly who I'm sure like their privacy. Yes. Yeah. Through different methods. I mean, there's, you know, there's different ways through real estate brokers, also interior designers, and um, sometimes through, you know, somebody on the co-op board. So there is varying, you know, varying ways to approach them. Most of these apartments are now co-ops, as we mentioned. Yes. Did they start off largely as hotels or rental buildings? Rental buildings, largely. Yes. And then they were converted uh, down the line. There was one building that had a lounge for chauffeurs. Yeah, <laughs> 825th Avenue. Yeah, pretty fantastic. That's an amazing building. I love that. It's so beautiful. It doesn't look real. It just, it just, it's it's stunning. It's an Italian Renaissance Palazzo building as well. It's one of my favorite buildings on Fifth Avenue. That was built by architect Start and Van Vleck. They actually were known for building um, department stores. They did Saks and Bloomingdale's, but they're um, pretty great architects. What do you hope people get out of this book? A sense of really the architecture around the park. They they know who built it. They know about the details because I talk about the details and the history of the building. And also be able to see the apartments beneath the exterior because that's one thing I think a lot of people go by. They see the exterior and they always wonder what the inside looks like. Okay, well, this book is your ticket to get inside some of New York City's most exclusive addresses. It's called Window on the Park, New York's Most Prestigious Properties on Central Park. Dee Fitzgerald, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Window on the Park is out now from Images Publishing Group. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bonarchy. My thanks to producer Michal Neria. Have a great weekend.